Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ready with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. For the past uh, year, or half year, we've been looking at the idols of the heart. And uh, this particular week, we're looking into the life of David. David, the story, the narrative in First and Second Samuel is the longest narrative in ancient literature regarding a single human life. And what that means is, if you want to learn about uh, life from end to end, if you want to learn about the things that grip the heart, if you want to learn about the things that make the heart, if you want to learn about the things that break the heart, if you want to learn about our idols, David, the story, the narrative of David is a great narrative study. Why? Because David is a king. He is the highest. He has arrived. And the Old Testament is really about the search for a true king, a true redeemer, because the world, as we know, the world is a broken place, and, and we're longing for justice. We're constantly longing for justice and peace. We're longing for a society with a king that's going to restore all that's broken in the world, all that's lost in the world. We're still longing for that. This passage, this passage uh, is, in this passage we see God, he comes to Samuel. Samuel's in despair. You know why? Because Samuel's longing for a true king. Samuel's longing for justice. Someone who's going to seek after the heart of God. Saul was supposed to be that king. Saul was supposed to be that king with God's heart, but he was corrupt. Corruption in Israel went from the top on down, and so Samuel is mourning, he's in despair, because he envisioned Saul to be this king. Remember uh, Star Wars, 
Book Three, one of the, the lesser trilogy, right? Uh, uh, Revenge of the Sith, Obi-Wan Kenobi towards the end, he says, you were the chosen one, the spare that Obi-Wan was in. Saul was, to be, Saul was supposed to be that. But Saul turned out like the rest of the kings in the world. And so Samuel's grieving and he says, you know, there's no one trustworthy. There's no one who's faithful enough. But then God comes to Samuel. And going back to Star Wars, book five, Empire Strikes Back, you have Obi-Wan saying, that boy was our last hope. Yoda says, ah, there is another. God has chosen somebody. Samuel's grieving. God says, there is somebody. And so there are three things today we're going to learn about kingliness, what it means to be kingly. Uh, the first is why we need to be kingly, why we need to have kingly character. Two, how do you get kingly character? How do you grow in character? Lastly, some practical applications about kingly character. Why we need to have it, how do you get it, how do you apply it, okay, in our lives. First, why do you need it? When God, at the end of chapter 15, or not the end, but in chapter 15, verse 11, God tells Samuel that he's rejected Saul as king. And Samuel, he's up, he's mourning, he's up all night and he's mourning. And in verse 1 of this passage, he's still grieving. And it really takes God to wake Samuel up out of his grieving. And he says, how long are you going to grieve? And God comes to Samuel and he says, be on your way. Why? Because I'm going to give you somebody else. In verse 1, God says, I have provided for myself a king among Jesse's sons. And you go down to verse 6 to 7. This is really the central part of this text. Samuel sees Eliab, the eldest son of Jesse. And he looks at him and he says, surely this is anointed. This is the anointed one. And God responds. And really what God says, God says to him, Samuel, you are self-deceived. Your eyes have been misdirected. You know what misdirection is? It's an art form in some ways. We call them magicians who, who take misdirection and use it as an art form. Magicians, they master the art of getting your full attention to pay your full attention to something that's completely inconsequential, completely un unimportant while their hand is doing something else. You completely miss it. That's what happens. It forces you to be blind. It forces you to be fooled. It forces you to not see reality. It forces you to not see the truth about things. It forces you to ignore what is important. God says to Samuel, you, the human race, everyone, you're obsessed with things that are not real. You're... Uh, you're you're obsessed with things that are, um, you think it's reality because it's material. But just because it's material, it doesn't mean it's real. Eliab comes by. This is the eldest son. Samuel sees Eliab and he's tall. He's got height. He's got presence. And he says, this is the one. Eliab is tall. You know why Samuel's taken by the fact that he's tall? When you're tall, it means to be attractive. Even now, then as it is now. Because to be tall is to be kingly, to be tall is to be impressive, to be tall is to say, I have strength, I have power in those ancient days, your height meant a lot. And so Samuel says, when he is, that the fact that he is tall, he's referring to Eliab's potential. He says, ah, this one, he's got potential. This one can be looked up to. This one it has strength. This one can, is, is towering above other people. He's got power, he's got skills. Saul was tall. And he says, this is, you know, when, when, Samuel, uh, when, when Samuel sees alive, he says, this must be the one. This must be the anointed one. God says, Samuel, your eyes are misdirected. This is the trap, the fundamental trap of the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. 
Character is the reality. Physical appearance, your, your sense of polish, your smoothness, your intelligence, your talent, your success, these things, your wealth, these things are unimportant. This, these things are not reality. Character is always greater than the externals. Man looks on the appearance, but not God. The Lord looks on the heart. Your physical appearance is not who you are. That's what he's saying. We live in a society. We live in a culture that's bombarded with images, that's bombarded with uh, uh, the need to look at the physical beauty to a degree, to the degree that uh, no matter who you are, you can't help but make comparisons of yourself with other people, of other people with other people. And it's corrosive to our soul. I'm going to give you a few examples. The first one, look at any real industry in our world today. America is really becoming just one big marketing organization. So if you look at uh, the pornography industry, the makeup industry, the fashion industry, most industries, the music industry, the movie industry, uh, even Wall Street, it's all everything, every type of industry capitalized on the fact that the soul is obsessed with what? Your shape, your appearance, the quality of your skin, as opposed to character, as opposed to character. And it's killing our women. It's destroying the self-image of our culture, of our women today. I'm going to give you another example. Everybody in our culture practically does dating exactly the way Jesse does dating. Not does dating, but you get what I'm saying here, right? Uh, the way Jesse is, is picking and choosing leaders. Jesse knew one of his sons was going to be king. And so uh, the first thing he does is he brings the most physically impressive people, the most attractive people, the most gifted son. Uh, he puts him forward first, right? So Eliab comes first. Then comes Abinadab. Then comes Shammah, right? The first son, the second son, the third son, all the way down to the seventh son. Um, David is completely forgotten. But if you think about it, what an, what an irony, because David is the king. So seven sons pass by until we get to David. We are obsessed with the lives in our lives. Maybe it's because of the sports entertainment industry. Maybe it's because of the, just pop culture in general. But really, uh, as a result, we're eliminating Davids from our lives when we should be pursuing them. And we're impressed by lives in our lives when we really, really should be redirecting our eyes. That's what's really going on. Uh, what we, what, how do we do dating? When we meet a guy, what are you first Im- impressed by when you meet somebody? You're impressed by their appearance. You're impressed by their intelligence. By the way, the Bible, if you look through the Bible and start from the Old Testament, look at the word intelligence all the way through to the end. It's rarely, if ever, honored in Scripture. What does that tell you? And yet we're taken by a person's intelligence well, we're taken by their appearance, their presence. We're taken by their ability, their articulation of things, their passions. We're, we're, we're taken by their job title. That's what we're taken by. And we'll go through the list of all, the checklist of all the things that we're impressed by, and then we say, and on top of that, he goes to church. How amazing is that? The text says we're always looking for a king. One of the story, one of the great themes of the Bible is that we're constantly looking for a king. And uh, the chances of just having eliminated the true king is very, very high because our eyes are misdirected. That's what the Bible says. That's what this text is telling us. 
Creativity. Look, look at all the miseries of the city. You look at all the broken relationships in our lives. What's the source? Do you think it's a lack of talent? Do you think it's because of a lack of intelligence? Do you think it's because of it's a lack of beauty? It's because there's a lack of love. There's a lack of compassion. There's a lack of character. There's a lack of trust. It's the pride. It's the anger. It's the selfishness. It's, those are the things that are destroying our city. Let me ask you a question. Do you have the guts today to go to somebody who knows you well and ask them some very, very important questions for yourself? Rather than relying on your own judgment, do you have the guts to walk up to somebody, somebody that you trust, and ask them, am I an anxious person or do you see me as, an, as a person of peace? Am I an angry person or do you view me as somebody who's content? Do you think I'm a vain person or would you characterize me as modest? Do you think of me as a self-absorbed person? Ask somebody else. Do you view me as somebody who's self-absorbed or am I a loving person? Am I a wise person in your eyes, do you think? Or do you think oftentimes I act like a fool? Are you willing to join a community group to go deeper, to stop talking about the inconsequential things in life and really go deeper in life? If you say, you know, I'd rather not, you know, or I'm afraid or not right now, you don't yet really see how God sees. You don't yet really see how God sees. It's possible to misunderstand when God, you know, it's really possible to misunderstand when God says, you know, no, I don't want any of these as king. The Lord looks upon the heart. It's very, very possible for us to misunderstand that and to think that, ah, David must have had a good heart and his brothers must have had a bad heart. Or David must have had a better heart than his brothers. You can, the best way to refute that is to look at the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel. And you're going to wonder, how did David become king? How did David become king and do all the bad things that he's done? Because at the end, if you think, if you read the, the narrative of David's life, at the end, his record isn't really much better than Saul's. David does terrible, unspeakable things in his life. And so he's not king. He's not chosen to be king because he has a better heart. Then why? Then why? If you look in the passage, it says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed into David's life. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord rushed in on David. What does that say? What does it mean? What does the text say here? That the Spirit then partnered with David so that David could make better decisions? The Spirit influenced David and and encouraged David and kind of helped him up uh, when he was in self-pity and just kind of helped him along his way? David just needed a little bit more help, just a little improvement in his life because he was just lacking a few things, a few missing pieces that would make him perfect because he's basically a decent guy. Is that what the text says here? No. The Spirit of God rushed in. The Holy Spirit, God flooded David's life every second of his life for the rest of his life. You can't, what does I tell you? You can't become kingly on your own. You cannot, we do not have the capacity nor the resources, nor, you think you're intelligent? You don't have enough intelligence. Because intelligence isn't enough. You see, we need God every second in our lives for every decision, every temptation. The book of Proverbs, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs and, has been, and have been confused, the book of Proverbs is a book that was really dedicated to boys who were growing up in the synagogue and they were taught in the ways of the Lord. It was a wisdom book. 
And if you read Proverbs, such as Proverbs chapter 2, verse 20, it says, Then will you, thus you will walk in my ways. You will keep to the paths of righteousness. You never hear in the Proverbs, nor anywhere in the Old Testament for that matter, that life is pretty much defined by leaps and bounds. We're taught that we have to take leaps of faith, that life is defined by leaps and bounds in our lives. The Bible doesn't view life that way. The Bible, the Bible views life the way the book of Proverbs views life. Well, how? Chapter 2, walk in my ways. Every step, every step, every decision, every temptation, every period of brokenness. We need the Lord every step of our lives because life is a walk. Why? Because the natural way of the heart, the natural way of the heart is not kingly character. If you want, you want justice, if you want justice, the Bible says that the natural way of the heart wants the self even more than justice. You would rather choose whatever is good for you above justice. That's the natural way of the heart. If you ignore this aspect of the teaching, that means your heart could be in great danger because if you believe that you are naturally good enough, if you functionally live your life as if you are not, how do you do that? Well, when somebody confronts you about your sin, you're automatically defensive. If somebody brings out a truth, you automatically assume that you understand what they're talking about. These are natural ways that the heart justifies itself to say that, yes, you, you're wise, you're good, you're intelligent, you'll never change. We need kingly character. And only the Lord, only the God of the heavens, the Almighty God in our lives, step by step, rushing into our lives, will shape us. We need kingly character. How do you get it? Jesse's got eight sons. He parades seven of them in front of Samuel. Seven is the, is the uh, number for completeness, for perfection in, in, the Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew texts. It's a symbol of completeness, a symbol of perfection. So seven sons go by, and Samuel says, ah, seven sons, that's it. God must have chosen one of them to be the complete, the perfect king. God doesn't choose any of them. Seven sons go by, God doesn't choose any of them. So, so he turns to Jesse, and he says, Jesse, is this it? I mean, there must be some mistake here. Is this all you have? Here's what, here's what it says in verse 11. Jesse says, well, no, there is the youngest the word literally takes the idea of, of David's youth and combines it with David's insignificance. That's the word. The word, the youngest, is taking his youth combined with his insignificance, irrelevance in the family. And really what Jesse is saying, when, when Samuel says, Jesse, is this all you've got? Is this it? Jesse responds and says, well, I mean, there's him. That's what he's saying. Samuel says, is this, it can't be. Jesse says, yeah, there, it's just, no, there's him. I didn't really even ask him to come. I didn't ask him to come because he's not kingly. He's a nobody. He's insignificant. He's nobody. I don't even know what his gifts are, so he's actually out there attending to the sheep. He's out with the sheep. Samuel says, I need to see him. I need to see this one. David comes in, and God says, this is the one. In ancient times, Ancient times were governed by uh, the law of primogeniture. What that means is that you always gave the oldest son all the power, which is why it was natural, pretty much natural for Samuel to see the first son in a lie and say, this must be the one. This must be the anointed one. But in every place in the Bible where God works, he works in a way to reverse those values of the world. He reverses the values of the world. There's always a reversal. So he always goes with the younger son, 
And that's why in the Bible, you see Abel and not Cain. That's why you see Jacob and not Esau. That's why you see Joseph and it's not Reuben. That's why you have Moses and it's not Aaron. God always works through who? The forgotten, the left behind. And it's not just, he doesn't just work through them. Despite their weakness and insignificance, he works through them because of their weakness and insignificance. Do you see the prerequisite here? The prerequisite to have God working in our lives? It's actually to do the very thing that we often fight against. It's to become weak. It's to become broken. It's to actually render ourselves insignificant. Robert Alter, he's a famous liberal uh, literary scholar uh, of the Hebrew language, of the ancient Hebrew texts. Uh, And he's a professor in Berkeley. And uh, he says this, if David was never the forgotten one, he would never have been looking after the sheep. He would never have been looking after the sheep. He would never have learned to fight bears and lions, things that are much bigger than him. He would never have been poised and prepared to fight Goliath. You see, God works through the broken, through the weak. When Samuel looks at Eliab the first time, he says, he says, surely this is him. You know what he's saying? He's saying, this is the anointed one. The Hebrew word for anointed um, is the word Messiah. In the Greek uh, Old Testament, um, that word uh, is uh, the word Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. In other words, what Samuel is saying is, is this the Christ? Is this the anointed one? It wasn't Eliab. It wasn't even David. Because David was a precursor, a pointer, a signpost to the actual real king. How? David was born in Bethlehem. Everyone's looking for a king. You know, David was the one that was left out. He was the one that was not admitted. And so he was left with the sheep and the animals. He was a shepherd. But there was another child born in Bethlehem centuries later. When everybody was looking for a king, this child was also not allowed in. And so he was left, born in a manger, he was left with the animals. And he grew up to become the good shepherd. He was the good shepherd, and as soon as he was anointed by the Spirit, as soon as the Holy Spirit rushed in, immediately he was sent into the wilderness. There he suffered, he experienced trouble, he experienced danger. He was starving, he was tempted by Satan until the cross, until all the way to the cross. And on the cross, he wasn't just forgotten. Now, David, he was forgotten by his father. Jesus Christ was not just forgotten by the father. He was forsaken by the father. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying there is, you have not just forgotten me. It was not an oversight. You have deliberately rejected me. The most beautiful, worthy king in all the world with kingly character, the true epitome of a king, the true embodiment of kingship and kingliness came to earth unrecognized lost all of his attractiveness. Isaiah 53 reads, he had no attractiveness by which we should desire him. You know what that means? He was the one that was overlooked. Jesus Christ was the one that was overlooked. Jesus Christ was the one that was insignificant. Jesus Christ was the one that was unattractive, rendered unattractive. He had no attractiveness by which we should desire him. Why? So we who are rejected, we who are spiritually ugly, can be beautiful in the eyes of God, can be accepted, can become acceptable in his sight. If you feel weak at times, there are days when everybody feels ugly, whether it's because of something on the inside or something on the outside. 
you feel rejected or on the outside, marginalized, until you recognize, until you see uh, the ultimate narrative of rejection perfected by Christ, the high king paying the eternal debt of justice, rejected by his father so that we could become accepted. You will not be shaped into kingly character. The gospel teaches that God works through the forgotten. God works through the rejected. God works through those who've been left behind to bring about ultimate salvation. Jesus Christ, through his brokenness, through his, on the cross, what is he saying? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am, now I am truly insignificant. Why? God has walked away. God has turned his face. God has forsaken me. I am experiencing the cosmic insignificance. Why? So that you could become insignificant. So that you could become significant. So you could be God's treasure. So that you could be acceptable in his sight. That means that God can work. If God can use the ultimate brokenness and through that brokenness bring about the ultimate redemption, that means God can work through your brokenness and your weakness and your ugliness. God can work through you. You don't have to be afraid of the real you. You have to confront that. Bring that to the Lord. Bring that to Christ who makes us beautiful, who makes us righteous, who cleanses us by his blood. Do you believe that? Does that move you? Does that shape you? He's given you himself. And so when you say that my life, I'm going to base my life not on my merit, but on the merit of Christ. Not on my moral record, but on the moral record of Christ. Not on my beauty, but on the beauty of Christ, the high king. Not even on my kingliness. Religion is to rely on your own kingliness. To build up your own kingliness on your own. And yet it's going to lead you to bitterness, comparisons, judgments of other people. The gospel is inside out. The Holy Spirit rushes in because you're saying, my life will no longer be based on my merit, but on the merit of Christ. I am forgiven and I am redeemed. There is your beauty. Jesus died for me. There is your beauty. There is real power. There is the, the opportunity, the invitation, and the power for real kingliness that you need. True beauty became ugly for you. True power became vulnerable for you. True power became vulnerable. He became a baby and he died. The ultimate vulnerability for you. True kingliness became a criminal for you. He suffered the wrath of God because he wanted you. That's what will change you. That's what will shape you into true kingliness. That's what's going to fill your heart with joy despite and in spite of who you are, despite your brokenness, knowing that now God will even use that brokenness to redeem me and birth me into new life and eternal life forever. That's the power to melt away all of our obsessions with appearance, all of our obsessions with the externals. It's going to change your eyes. It's going to change what kingliness is to you. It's going to change what it means to pursue kingliness and how to pursue it. Look to the beauty of Christ. Look to the righteousness of Christ. Trust in the work of Christ for you. Will you do that? Some applications, very quickly, some applications. One, don't be obsessed with externals. You have to desire to be a person of character. Think about this. You have to desire to be a personal person of character. If you spend as much time on your character as you do on the outer qualities of your life, if you invest as much uh, in your integrity and in your purity as you do on your education or on your career, if you valued 
If you treasured, if you delighted in your relationship with the Father as much as you do with your wallet or your bank account, you would all reach a greater potential than you are today. Every one of us. You will have true options, true freedom, true joy. But you know why we don't do that? It's because, number one, we are obs- why are we so obsessed with externals? Deep inside, there is an inadequacy and a fear in our heart. That's what sin does. Sin creates a fear, a fear of disapproval. That's why we have to be beautiful in front of somebody else, a, a fear of failure. We need to be approved either by our boss or our parents or whoever it is, maybe even our own children. We need to be secure. We need to have a sense of security in our lives, and that's why we are so into building our 401Ks. We spend so much time. We are obsessed with that. Because then I have real security. These are the core motivations of the heart. These are our idols. These are the things that drive our decisions, what we're attracted to, who we are attracted to. These are the things that blind us. Our eyes are misdirected. Desire first to honor God through character. But you say, but I don't have that character. Pastor, I don't have that character. First of all, it's never going to just happen by saying, today I commit to being a, a better person. We all make New Year's resolutions. That's why resolutions don't work. You can't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm a horrible person. I'm going to become a better person today. I'm going to live. I'm just going to take it step by step and do better. Do your best. Starting today, you ever hear the tongue assignment? Commit just this week to not saying a single bad thing about anybody. Commit just this week to do that and see what happens. Take notes of any time you fail in doing that. You know what it's going to teach you? Even when you are at your best and conscious of it, we fail. Even when you are at your best and conscious of thinking about not doing certain things, we'll still do it. That is how sin, sin is so corrosive and so deep in our lives. It will work all the way to the core. It, It works through all the core motivations because it is the core motivation of our heart and it seeks to destroy and corrode our souls. It's never gonna just happen by saying, by just committing to be a better person. The only thing that's gonna shape the motivation of our hearts, something has to happen in our lives. Something has to happen to shape us, an event. Experience the love of the king. Look at the cross. That's the event. Experience the love of the king. We are built and shaped in a way where we need something on the outside telling us we're okay. That's why wives look to their spouses and ask, do I look okay? Do I look fat? That's what they do. That's why they do that, because we are built that way. We are built in a way where we desire and need somebody on the outside validating us. And it works out very practically. There's not a single person here on a career path that validates themselves or that can validate themselves. I certainly can't sit here and say, well, I think I'm a good pastor, so I must be a good pastor. That is like the worst logic in the world, right? And neither can you. You know, oh, I think I'm a pretty good husband despite what my wife or anybody else thinks, I think I'm a pretty good husband, so I must be a good husband. Nobody does that. It's illogical and it's unintelligent, let alone foolish. We are built in such a way where we need somebody outside of ourselves validating and justifying us. We're built that way. That's why we, but the thing is, our eyes are misdirected and we look to one another and that's why we we are obsessed with externals. And that's why sometimes we need somebody on the outside in our lives. If I could just have that one relationship, then I feel validated. You see, experience the love of the king. Experience the cross and the love of the king in a way that shapes you. Because there is your validation. There is your sense of worth. Let that be above all the other things that you've ever held up. Because all the other things are going to demand and corrode your soul. But the gospel, when it comes in, 
it's going to say, listen, God doesn't come to you and say, shape up. Look what I, do you know what I did for you? I'm going to give you one more chance. That's not a loving king. That's not what God does. I grew up thinking that, by the way, but that's not what God does. Augustine prayed, command what you will of me and grant me the strength to do your will. It was actually turned into a great theological argument. Command what you will of me and grant me the strength then to do what you command. It's an amazing prayer. What he's saying is, I don't have the resources inside to do anything you ask me to do. Will you give me the strength? Look to the cross. Experience the embrace of the Father and let the Holy Spirit work in your life in such a way, in union with him, in union with God, hidden in Christ. Let the Holy Spirit shape you. Look, our beauty, our beauty is going to say, you work for other people's acceptance. But the gospel says, Jesus Christ, the most beautiful person that ever walked the earth, already accomplished it for you, already lived righteous, perfect, and then died and paid the price for you. There is the approval that you need. There is the honor that you need. Pursue Christ. Pursue the love of God in your life. Pursue, see, recognize, and submit and surrender to the fact that you are utterly loved and embraced by the Father. Let that shape you. Let that be your, your source of worth in your life. Number two, when you do that, you're going to stop pursuing other Eliabs in your life. Stop trying to pursue the Eliabs and stop trying to become an Eliab, okay? Samuel looks at Eliab. He's focusing on the exterior. How's that going to work out practically? You know, think about something as simple as your choice of boyfriend or girlfriend in your life. For those of you who aren't married, right? If you are married, you've You've been through the horror and the traumas of dating, right? Look at your choice of boyfriend or girlfriend. When you're on a date, what do you do? It's always the art of misdirection. It's always the art of misdirection at work. When you're on a date, you try to look your best, act your best. But in a way, it's really dishonest. Because what you're doing is you're misdirecting them, the other person, to see the exterior and and the things that you think would attract them. And really what you're doing is you're repressing or you're hiding all that they sh- really should know about you. On one hand, you have to pursue Christ so that you will develop and grow in kingly character. And on the other hand, be honest about yourself. Be honest about yourself. Stop trying to pursue a lie. Stop trying to present yourself as an alive. Three, if you look at this text and if you pay careful attention, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, that is, when you come to Christ, when you come to the knowledge, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you know what that means? You know, that is to become a Christian. Look at David's life. David, in becoming king, being anointed, ever since that day, the Holy Spirit rushed into his life. You know what happens to David? Did he live just a great life, sit on a throne, and make that his home? Is that what happened to David? No. From that point on, chapter, the next chapter over is just trouble. First, he meets Goliath. Chapter 18, the king is seeking to kill him. There's a civil war. He's hiding in caves. He's separated from his family and from his home. Every time you see in the Bible God's presence in someone's life, the Holy Spirit taking somebody or in somebody's life, what happens is there's persecution, there's imprisonment, there's jail time, there's torture, there's wilderness, there's caves, all the way to Jesus Christ, baptized in the Holy Spirit, immediately sent into the wilderness, and he suffers. Why? It's because God's not after your looks. 
If you're in the wilderness or if you're in a cave, I guarantee you your skin quality will decrease. God isn't after your looks. He's after your character. That means that the moment that God enters into your life, there will be trouble. There's going to be suffering in your life. There's going to be loss. There are going to be times in your life when you can't make sense out of life. There are going to be just dry times where it feels like God is very, very absent. There's going to be wilderness periods in our lives. There will be uncertainties, the unknown storms, brokenness, suffering, trouble. But David learned through that to depend on the Lord, to trust in the Lord. You see so many psalms written by David about his trust in the Lord. He's in caves. Do you have... Do you know that the minute that the Holy Spirit comes into David's life, there was trouble and suffering? That means, what does that mean about you? When you come to know Jesus, when you experience the gospel and know the gospel, there's going to be trouble in our lives so that God can use that trouble to shape you because God works through the brokenness. And that's really my last point, the last application. If God saved the world through the ultimate brokenness of Christ, then what about you? God will redeem you, brokenness is really a prerequisite for salvation. It's a prerequisite for redemption. It's a prerequisite. It seems counterintuitive that you have to be broken in order to heal, but it is the prerequisite for healing, deep healing. Brokenness doesn't guarantee salvation. As a pastor, I've seen many people who are broken and have turned bitter and angry and away from the Lord. I've known pastors and church planners do that as well. But the next time you're in wilderness, what are you going to rest in? Augustine says, God, grant me the strength to do what you command. Don't trust in your own abilities through the hard times. A lot of us, we believe we have the resources to get through. We just think, I'm just going to push through the hard times. You're still relying on your abilities. You're still relying on your own resources, your own capacities. And you may get through it, but you're going to miss the point. You're going to become... You're going to become... Uh, skeptical of your own ability. You have to become skeptical of your own abilities. You have to become skeptical of your own wisdom and rely on what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, continues to do what Jesus has provided and gives you so that you will grow and mature in wisdom and mature in compassion, mature in love, mature in character, mature in peace, mature in joy. Will you rest on the love of Christ to develop kingly character in your life today, forever. Make that a commitment in your life. Let's pray.